Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to Episode 6 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Today I'm going to keep going with our look at the Eightfold Path, moving on from right view to right intention. You know, we kind of took a little diversion sidetrack, which I hope you enjoyed in the last two episodes. You know, one sort of that maybe thing, and, and the other was that wonderful interview with Noah Rochetta, which I hope you all enjoyed. So today was entitled, the way I promoted it was, Right Intention, a.k.a. Remembering to be less of a jerk. Before I even move on to talking about the word intention and, you know, what it implies, I'll look at the subtitle and why I used it. You know, the key words, I think, are in that subtitle is remembering less and jerk. Probably jerk was the only thing that stood out to you, but the remembering and less is probably the key to right intention. It's actually the key to having any attention, let alone a right one. And that is to remember that you have to have, or you have to have had an intention. You know, all too often, you know, even if we do have an intention to do or to not do something, our days, our habits, you know, our animal brains keep sort of kidnap us and we forget until, you know, the day's over or almost over. It's like, oh, shoot, I was going to do that. I was going to open the door for everybody. I was going to smile at everybody. You know, I was going to, you know, never use the word crap or shit or whatever your word is, hopefully not worse. Uh, mine can be at times, but you know, we forget. It's like resolutions. You know, speaking of remembering and resolutions, do you remember yours for 2018? And if you do remember them, how have you done this first half of the year? Yeah, what I thought, that's just it. Resolutions are just thoughts. And you know, positive thoughts are great, but without action, it's a thought that stays in your mind, but only briefly. The nature of thought, but you know, by its very nature is it kind of arises and it disappears. It arises and it disappears. And if you've had any experience in trying to meditate, you know how that goes. You know, it's what they call the monkey mind, jumping from branch to branch. So thoughts aren't made of the stuff that keep them around. And since they're not around, it's hard for them to inspire action because, you know, they're not there. You remembered them when you got up in the morning, but then, you know, probably after you ate breakfast, had coffee, got in the car to go to work, they're gone. Especially if there's some jerk in front of you on <laughs> driving to work. And then they're really gone. And then you become a jerk. See how that all works? But anyway, resolutions typically don't work because they require mindfulness to work. So they're not, you know, they have another implied action. It's like cleaning. There's rarely a cleaning product that works without some effort. 
some scrubbing on your part. Even those magic erasers, which, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried them, but they pretty are, they pretty much are kind of magic. They require very little effort, but they do require a little effort. They require a little elbow grease. That reminds me of a story from my childhood that is related to all this intention and resolution stuff. And maybe, hopefully, it will serve as a metaphor for this podcast if I can make it work and keep it up. <clears throat> so I think I was probably 10, 12 years old. And I was rinsing the supper dishes and putting them in the dishwasher. And then I started to scrub the sink. There was a stain that I couldn't get out with the Comet or whatever I was using. I yelled to my mom and asked her how to get the stain out. She replied that I should use elbow grease. She said, elbow grease. So I immediately opened up cupboard after cupboard after cupboard, you know, looking for a jar, a can, or a box, or anything that had a label on it, elbow grease. You know the end of this story. Of course, I couldn't find it, and of course, it led to a few snickers among the older parents and siblings in the family, but it is something I'll never forget. You know how we always remember those stupid things you did in life? Like those, there. you know, it's every embarrassing thing that ever happened to you. Like I, I remember elbow grease and and uh, and uh, it, misspelling a word um, or mispronouncing a word in school. They kind of like there are these little vignettes of embarrassment that play in full color and full sound in your head over and over and over again. But in this case, I'm kind of glad I remember elbow grease because whenever I'm trying to do something and it's not working. You know, it's not turning out the way I thought it would. I think elbow grease. It's like a signal to me to put some focused effort and not go with my first like whiny reaction. It's not working. It can't be done. And it's also a reminder that the solution starts and ends with me. You know, despite our intention to look everywhere out there for an answer, or for someone to blame, it does. It, you know, that's that's the typical response. It's like, oh, this isn't working, so it's like I got the wrong tools, or um, you walked in on me when I was trying to do it, so you screwed it up for me. Uh, but you know, it's not like that. But it's like what I have to do, and that doesn't always imply that I have to have more force or push harder, although sometimes it does. Like in the case of the elbow grease, I think I remember it was about not pushing as hard as I thought I should. But many times, it's just really about focusing more intently on what's really happening. What's right in front of me right now? What needs to be done? And then calmly considering what could work and how might I accomplish that? And you know what? That takes a minute, or maybe two, of being mindful and turning off the reactive brain that just wants to give up, be lazy, get mad, blame someone, or anything else. So let's go back to that stain in the sink. Sometimes instead of me just picking up the sponge or the magic eraser and applying a little elbow grease, you know what I do? I go off on a mental journey of, what the heck is this stain? How did it get here? 
Who did that? Why didn't they notice? Or why didn't they clean it up? See, now it's so much worse and so much harder to get out. If only they would. Yeah, that's how it goes. Or maybe it's just me. But if you do that too, remember the code words. Elbow grease. Hey, did I, did I get off track here? Yeah, yeah, I did. It's about right intention. Oh, yep, that's what it's about. But no, no, I am on track. At least I'm on some kind of track that makes sense to me. So just go with me here. This is how our minds work. And the more we watch them and the more we see how they work, the more likely we are to interrupt them before they kidnap us and make us do jerky things. You know, I've said this before, but the reason I'm doing this podcast is to show how Buddhism is helpful in everyday life. And I mean real everyday life, like complaining about the stain in the sink and blaming someone else for putting it there. When chances are, I was the one that did it. When I work with my coaching clients, many times I take them to these real places to uncover what the real problem is. And you know, we don't talk about Buddhism. I never bring it up. But when they come to me complaining about their negative or unhelpful coworkers, or complaining about being laid off 10 years or two jobs ago, or complaining about recruiters or the job market or whatever, you know, I need to put the focus back on them and see what they're thinking. Sometimes it's really hard. They avoid it with all they can, but they say, but, but, but what about, but what about? But you know, I do, we have to keep going back to ourselves. You have to see what you believe about what you're thinking. Then we can go from there. We are quick to blame everything out there for our problems. And maybe there is much out there, like in the case of my career coaching clients, like the economy, the industry, the market, the boss. You know, maybe that is the cause of your particular flavor of work or career problems. But maybe, just maybe, some of it is about you too. Maybe there is fear. Maybe there's timidity. Maybe there's anger. Maybe there's jealousy. Maybe there's some sort of basic emotion that you don't know where it came from, but is stuck in you and it robs you of the energy and focus you need to reach your goals. You know, maybe it's procrastination, perfectionism, laziness, boredom. You know, if you look, you will see. But if you don't take a good look at yourself, you're only seeing half of the potential challenges to your goals, and half of the potential strengths you can harness for success in reaching them. You know, mo most of the time I spend so much time looking out there for the elbow grease. I think we all do this. Looking out there for the elbow grease in every cupboard, under any, every rock, blaming every person, that I don't even bother to think about how to do it myself or even try to scrub the stain myself. You know, these Buddhist tips and tricks, as I call them, are the keys to getting the stains out. But warning, it's a DIY. It's a, DI, a do-it-yourself project first. You know, so trying to be less of a jerk 
First of all, remember I told you there were three key words, trying, less, and jerk. So trying to be less of a jerk, <clears throat> first of all, requires trying. That's not thinking, but trying. When we make a resolution, when we have the thought to do something, our body is the action-making machine. And that body tends to ignore us because our body does what it's used to doing. You know, in physics, we learn about inertia, that definition of inertia, right? A property of matter by which continues its existing state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line, unless that state is changed by external force or a body at rest tends to stay at rest. So you got to have something that wants to move it beyond what it's habitually what it habitually does, what it wants to do. And yep, that's a real thing demonstrated to us in our everyday behavior. That's why most resolutions, like New Year's resolutions, aren't realized. Now let's circle back to those New Year's resolutions and how they are one way to get at this intention business. I was featured in an article on Glassdoor by Eileen Honigman Meyer. Eileen, I'm sorry if I butchered your name. I have trouble with that one. Anyway, I was featured in her article, 18 Career Resolutions to Make for 2018, in the Career and Company Review website Glassdoor. And she, was, she quoted me as saying, We typically have trouble self-correcting because we do things habitually or from a reactionary pattern. We never actually see ourselves doing them until we complete the action. Being mindful is the process needed to accomplish change. Greg Kretsch, who wrote the book, The Art of Taking Action, Lessons from Japanese Psychology, says taking action is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done in response to the needs of the situation. Wow, that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But most of the time, it's not anywhere near that simple because most of the time, we just react. We don't respond to the needs of the situation because a lot of times, I think we've gone way beyond what the needs of the situation are and we're in the mode of freaking out about whatever our emotional response to the situation is. We respond to how we feel about the situation. You know, when we feel strong emotions where we have an emotional response to some situation or some person, it can prevent, kidnap, or distort our actions. Our emotions are wired in the limbic system of the brain. This is that, uh, I think I mentioned it in the interview with Noah, the, the lizard brain, you know. Fly goes by, tongue goes out. This is the flight or fight thing, our protective or survival mechanism. But the truth of most of our lives is that we really don't need that response. You know, we don't have tigers chasing us most of the time, or at all, actually. In my life, I don't, have, don't think I ever had a tiger. Um, but, you know, there is danger sometimes. But generally, in our day-to-day -day situation, we don't really need that response to work. And because it automatically works, it causes us trouble. 
This flight or fight reaction performed by the amygdala activates and distorts or kidnaps our intentions. It happens fast. Before you know it, we're acting like a jerk. We didn't mean to, we say. We didn't intend to. Of course we didn't. But because we weren't watching our emotions, we weren't watching what was happening, we weren't aware, our amygdala fired and we acted like a jerk. I looked up the word intention in the Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. The definition is, quote, a determination to act in a certain way, or, quote, resolve. Referencing the word intention in the online Encyclopedia Britannica, I found from the Latin intentio in scholastic logic and psychology, a concept used to describe a mode of being or relation. Interesting, a mode of being. In knowing, it says, the mind is said to intend or tend toward its object. And as a thing is known or is in the knowing mind, has intentional being. Intention may mean either the mind knowing or the knowledge itself, analogous to the use of perception for the act of perceiving And in criminal law, one of the most important general principles, right, is that an individual normally isn't convicted of a crime without having an intent to commit the act in question. Or if they are uh, convicted of the crime, they're convicted at a lesser penalty rate. So what struck me about these definitions and explanations is mostly the one that says in knowing the mind is said to tend toward its object. Now, I think if we analyze our minds honestly, you know, most of our sort of how we think of intentions is passive. As in, oh, these were my best intentions. I intended to do that. As if we accepted almost automatically that our actions or activities won't be as we intended. I intended to do that. Like, it's pretty common that they're not going to, we're not going to actually do that. We're going to intend to do it, but we're not actually going to do that. Sort of like the best of our intentions are mutually exclusive to our very condition of humanness. Like, yeah, we all have intentions, but we really can't accomplish them because we can't do that because humans can't really accomplish their intentions. Really? You got I got to question that. But to have right intention first, as I said, it has to have action. That's the missing link. You know, we have to remember it, but we also have to act on it. It cannot be a passive wish. The action can be motivated by a wish, but at the same time, you have to believe, sort of, that that wish is a possibility and not a vague slogan or not, you know, impossible because the nature of our humanness means we can't actually accomplish our intentions. You know, we have to honestly believe to know. We have to honestly believe that we can be better, that we that we actually can be less of a jerk. You know, I hear people say, my coaching clients, you know, my friends, my families, and me, I hear myself say this. Things like, uh, let's see, but this is how I am. It's just how I am. I can't help it. Or, 
I can't help being sarcastic. My whole family is sarcastic. Or I can't help it that I just say things without thinking about them. That's just who I am. I'm out there. I'm real. You know, when I hear these things, and when I hear myself saying these things, because I do, I say, like me, my biggie is, uh, I can't help that I'm judgmental, or I can't help being a bit in your face. That's my particular, you know, sort of fallback. But I have to stop and say, oh, yes, you can. You can help it. You just don't want to apply any effort. You just don't want to look at how that's really working out for you or how that's really affecting the other person. You just don't want to apply any elbow grease. My experience with the psychology of Buddhism, you know, the Buddhist tips and tricks, is that you don't have to be perfect, right? You can accept that you're not going to be perfect. You don't have to be a Buddha. You don't have to be a Christ to have the wish to be motivated by bigger and better intentions. You just need to have the wish and then act on it to try to be less of a jerk. You fake it till you make it. You start by seeing yourself and your world and all others as Buddhas or Christ or any other person you totally believe models the type of person you'd like to be in your reaction with other people, and in your reaction with the world around you. You know, any sports coach or music teacher will tell you the same thing. If you model yourself after your goal, your intended future state, that's your goal, and make sure all your thoughts and actions are consistent with that state, that model, pretty soon you'll be shooting par or playing Bach concertos, right? But, you know, having a teacher doesn't guarantee you will be a professional golfer, pianist, or a Buddha. You have to practice. You have to take the knowledge, the methodology they've given you, and make it your own. You have to act on the lessons. You know, in Buddhism it's said, as a practitioner, you are to hear, think, and meditate. That is the action that is required to be a Buddhist practitioner. So, okay, let's look at this. I think most of us have this habit of hearing. Then we go and hear something else again. Then we go hear something else and something else, creating a mental stew of good advice with maybe a little thinking thrown in, but we don't act on it. What we tend not to do is to meditate on what we've heard. And take it up as a part of our very lives. Thinking about it. That's what meditation is. Remembering, thinking. Like practicing your golf swing every night in the backyard. Or playing scales on the piano every morning. And we have to see things as they really are. With right view. To understand what our big intentions should be. You know, right view, again, is a clear understanding of the way things really are. We see things as they are without the filter of expectations, hopes, or fears, which is wisdom. Yeah, I know I'm talking about that we have to have an image of ourselves as being better. And so that sort of isn't the way things are. 
but how are you dealing with the world at this moment in time? That gives you a good example of what you're not. So you sort of have an understanding of where you need to go. Sort of like a gap analysis in business, right? Right view enables us to see clearly and feel deeply. And you know, I think I've mentioned before that wisdom that comes from right view is really just renunciation. And renunciation has a real bad name. But in renunciation, I always use the Tibetan term. It means authentic becoming. It does not necessarily mean living in isolation from the world, but a renouncing of the delusions that keep one from becoming one's authentic self. And this has a lot to do with what we're talking about and what we would like to be, the model of we would like to be, but it has to be authentic in line with the way things really are. You know, these habitual reactivity patterns aren't our authentic self. They are that reactivity that's wired from our lizard brains. So in becoming authentic self, we have to give up the appearance of things as something, someone out there happening to you. That's the biggest problem. It means instead of grasping tightly to the things that will only cause us suffering, like that big jerk that causing me to have this terrible day again, or clinging desperately to the things as we would like them to be, oh, why can't I have a day off? And, you know, what a beautiful day. Why can't I have a day off? And then it sets you up for being miserable all the rest of the day. No, instead of clinging to all those things that aren't, we need to surrender in an active sense of surrendering, knowing it's the best for us, to the things exactly as they are. This correct view of self, or no self to be exact, is critical to motivating right intention or a big intent. The big intent of Buddhism is ultimately compassion. You know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama frequently says, My religion is compassion. He also frequently quotes from Master Shantideva who said, All happiness in this world arises from cherishing others. Every suffering in this world arises from self-cherishing. Cherishing. So for me, this is the big intent the thing that makes life meaningful, the thing that helps me try to be less of a jerk. And it requires that I maintain a focus on the right view of self. But as I emphasized earlier, just knowing what right view is and what right intention is or what this big intention is, is really different than acting on it. The Buddha actually taught that there are three kinds of right intention. And these, this is a helpful little um, tip to remember. These three kinds of right intention counter three kinds of wrong intention. So they are, number one, the intention of renunciation, which we've just talked about, and that counters the intention of desire. We can authentically become who we authentically are if we're not desiring something we're not or something that it isn't. Number two, the intention of goodwill, which counters the intention of ill will. 
and the intention of harmlessness, which counters the intention of harmfulness. So I just talked about renunciation, but let's look at number two and three, goodwill and harmlessness. To me, this means developing or awakening the good heart. And I don't mean, you know, being in excellent cardiovascular shape, although that is a good intention too. You know, in Tibetan, compassion is translated as nobility or greatness of heart. You know, that implies wisdom and discernment or right view, plus empathy, unselfishness, and abundant kindness. Remember that tender heart? We all had it as a kid, and I know some of you still have it, that unselfish urge to pick a daisy and hand it to a stranger. It's a drive to make sure everyone's happy. You know, the perfect archetype of this kind of great heart in the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist mythology is the, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. The Bodhisattva of Compassion is known as Avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit, also known as Chenrezeg in Tibetan. But the point is, is he's pictured in many forms. He's actually sometimes pictured in a female form and actually sometimes pictured in a male form. And I won't go into all the different representations and different names for this Bodhisattva of Compassion. But he's, he's typically pictured with four or a thousand arms. He is said to have made a vow to deliver all the people. This, now, this is Chen Rezig I'm talking about. To deliver all the people of Tibet from suffering and help them gain enlightenment. And he wished that if he ever hesitated to do that, he actually made this wish. It was like a threat to himself. Now, if I don't really try to do this, then I'm going to have to split into a thousand pieces. At one point, he became discouraged by the great task and momentarily thought of giving it up. And at that very instant, his head shattered into pieces. In his agony, he called out to the Buddha Amitabha and to help. And the Buddha Amitabha created a new body for him with ten heads and a thousand arms so that he could see and reach out to all beings and carry out his work more effectively. It's a charming story. And yes, some might call it a myth. But on a more profound level for us in an everyday Buddhism concept, it applies to this practice of right intention. We may have a noble intention, but you know, in fulfilling it, it may pro prove too hard for us. It might, we might think, oh no, I can't do it. Like, where's the elbow grease? But if we keep at it with sincere motivation and continue on, it allows a more powerful force to enter. If we could activate it on our own consciousness and let it fight the function of the amygdala, it will slowly get stronger and stronger and start to guide our thoughts and actions. What a, this great force I'm talking about here is, in everyday terms, let's call it equanimity. Equanimity is the ability to directly experience our emotions, our triggers, what's happening to us without totally giving in to them and amplifying them or suppressing them or denying them. This equanimity is like a magic power that can sort of reorganize the way we move in the world. 
but it takes mindfulness or concentration and clarity to develop this magic power of equanimity. But if we do, it can transform our view from selfish to a right view, from selfish to an unbiased view. It can, in fact, transform us into a being with 10 heads, not just the amygdala, powering our activities and creating an endless capacity or a thousand arms. Like, haven't you ever noticed when you really want to, like if you're a parent and a child really wants something and you're, you're, you just think you can't move, you're exhausted, but you know, if, if, if your partner asked you to do it, you'd say, I can't move, I'm too tired. But if a child really wants something, you find a way to do it. That's those a thousand arms. And that's the tender heart working on the a thousand arms. So in fact, Chen Rezik is a symbol of our consciousness transformed and our ego shattered by equanimity and the ability to reconnect to our tender heart. I'll end this episode by leaving with you with four practices for right intention by Thich Nhat Hanh. Number one, ask yourself, are you sure? Write that question on a piece of paper and hang it where you'll see it frequently because it's wrong perceptions that lead to incorrect thinking. If you ask yourself, are you sure? you'll have a check against wrong perceptions. Number two, ask yourself, what am I doing to help you come back to the present moment? This is where you catch yourself in the act of doing something you didn't really want to do. So like you intended not to check Facebook all day. Um, that was your intent. I'm not going to do it, whatever. And then if you keep asking yourself what you're, what you're doing, you're going to see yourself opening up that tab on your desktop or checking your phone or whatever it is. But if you don't ask yourself what you're doing, you just do it, right? You'll never know until after it's done. Number three, recognize your habit energies. It kind of goes back to what I was just talking about. But habit energies like workaholism or or um, habitual phone checking or um, whatever can... Tr- can cause us to lose track of what we really want to do with our lives and what we really want to do in our day-to-day lives. So when you catch yourself on autopilot, say, hello, habit energy, there you are. But since I recognize you, you'll go away. And number four, cultivate bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is another one of those big Sanskrit words it's actually, you know, it's, it's typically translated as uh, the compassionate wish to realize enlightenment for the sake of all others. But let, I'll break it down for you. From bodhi, which means awakening, or what we call enlightenment, enlightenment and chita, which is the word for mind. So it's awakened mind, and that's sometimes referred to as heart mind, which I really like, because it connotes a sense of a mind being not necessarily restrained by working, but working in tandem with the heart, sort of an emotive awareness of the world rather than intellect. You know, there are tons of books and commentaries on the cultivation of, mo- of bodhicitta, 
And, you know, various schools of Mahayana Buddhism approach it in various ways. But for our purposes, for everyday Buddhism, it all comes down to sincere practice or actually doing it. It is said that the Bodhisattva path, which is centered around that feeling of bodhicitta, the the leading of the heart-mind, begins when the sincere aspiration to liberate all beings first wells up in the heart. You know, from a religious perspective, you could call this kind of a conversion experience, and that would transform your outlook of the whole world. It's that power of, like, calling up the ten heads and the thousand, thousand arms centered in your tender heart that we tend to disconnect from in our habitual everyday, you know, day-to-day energy. It's that tender heart that focuses on making another happy. This is the purest of right intentions. And if we can just remember it just now and then, so you got the remembrance part and then you got the now and then part that gives you the less, then it can be the motivating force that will help us to be less of a jerk. So I'll leave you there for episode six of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. I hope you continue to listen to my podcast episodes. And don't forget to follow, subscribe, download. I'd love it if you rated and reviewed and share with friends and family. And if you haven't done it already, go to my website, everyday-buddhism.com so that you can uh, subscribe to my mailing list to find out what's coming next, what guests are coming next, or any other surprises I might have store for you, in store for you for in the future. But uh, thanks again. I really appreciate all your positive comments and reviews and your downloads. Um, it just makes this so much more fun. That's until next time. Keep making every day better. <laughs>